Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, where Paul read for us earlier, and get into the parable of the vineyard owner, chapter 20, verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and then he went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and they cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they'll respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come and destroy those vine dressers. And give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And then he looked at them and said, well, what then is that that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomsoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. As we continue... um, chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Lord has a little less than a week uh, before he is going to be crucified. So he's in that final period of time, and he knows it. Um, The last thing that closes his message to the nation of Israel is actually, if you go back to chapter 19, uh, where he cleanses the temple because the religious leaders were uh, using it as a scam to make money, as they um, were replacing currency. If you were going to buy something uh, for an offering, you had to use what they call a temple shekel. And that was the only currency that was good for buying your, your sacrifice. And in a transaction, they would skim a little bit and take a little bit off as you were trading in your money, they would just up it up a little bit, and they were profiting. Now, it was the religious leaders that were at the top of this um, scheme. So in verse 45, with that as a background of 19, um, Jesus went into the temple, and he began to drive out those who bought and sold. And he said, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and this is the part you want to underline, but the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to him. This is the last words that the Lord is going to speak to them. At this point, um, he has pretty much written them off as far as being able to Um, minister to them and so as a result the only alternative is we have to kill this man and we have it clearly here in verse 47 the people sought to destroy him well it's this background that brings us to the parable of the vineyard and basically the Lord is saying this is nothing new this has been going on And the parable is basically about the prophets that the Lord sent to Israel from the very, very beginning, beginning with the very, very first prophets, that the experience as they would bring the message was despised, and uh, they would treat God's prophets shamefully. Some they would kill, and uh, others they would beat. Uh, There's so many examples, I'm only going to, for sake of time, be able to look at one example of this this parable. 
But um, um, earlier, right before this parable, um, we find back in uh, chapter 19, picking it up with um, what we call the triumphal entry. It's going to be quoted twice, Psalm 118. Because of the resurrection of Lazarus, there's huge multitudes of people that are gathered together. And um, as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, verse 38, they quoted Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Meaning it's it's a psalm specifically about the Messiah when he's going to come. So they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest. Now, the Pharisees knew this was a messianic psalm because the next thing they say to Jesus is, rebuke these people because they actually think you're the Messiah. And he says, well, I can't do that. I can't do that because it is written that on this particular day, we're gonna go back to Psalm 118, but not right now. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We're gonna rejoice and be glad in it. It's a day like no other day. This day was the day that he allowed the people to worship him. When before, if a miracle would happen, what was protocol? Don't tell anybody. Uh, keep it a secret. And, um, but not here. This is the only place where it's completely different, where he says, I really can't do that. You see, because... Um, it is written about Psalm 118. Um, in verse 40, I tell you that if they would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So we have this taking place and then it going into his last words to them where he clears out the temple. And um, here is where what they've been planning all along, now they're determined to do. And we find, as we look at this particular parable this morning, um, verse 19 of chapter 20, when Jesus told this parable and um, what was going to happen to these religious leaders that killed the prophets, it says in verse 19 that the chief priests and the scribes from that very hour sought to lay hands on him. In other words, they wanted to kill him because of the parable we just read. But they feared the people. They wanted to lay hands on him, but they feared the people for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So he's telling them this parable and when he explains and points the finger at them and saying, I'm talking about you guys, you religious leaders. Um, Back where you when I, I cleanse the temple, you, you were determined at that time, your life is over. So what does the Lord do? He puts it in a parable form and explaining really um, the hundreds if not thousands of years where God was seeking to bring forth fruit from his people Israel, but they did not want to listen. And as a result, the Lord says, well, I sent one, you killed him. I sent another, you treated him shamefully. And then I'd send a third. And finally, we find Jesus coming himself and their plot he's exposing. He says, you guys want to kill me. He comes right out and points the finger, says, you want to kill me. And he says, now, what do you think the father is going to think about that? The owner of the vineyard. Well, I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to come and destroy you. So what do they say? Certainly not. I love the Lord. I love how the Holy Spirit, and this gets back to what the gals are talking about. One thing you learn over time by continually going through the scriptures are these little nuggets, little treasures. Oh, I never saw that before. And it's interesting how the Lord church heard the tables on these guys on this one. Well, this is a classic example of that. Back in chapter 19, the Pharisees were all upset because the people were quoting Psalm 118. And now, um, as he tells this parable, um, he quotes Psalm 118. And as a result, um, 
he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's part of Psalm 118. They used it to try to stop Jesus, but the Lord just turns it right back around. And he says, no, you're the ones who have rejected the cornerstone. And I just think it's interesting how in these two chapters, Psalm 118 is, is prevalent. All right, this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to trace Satan's plan to destroy the Jewish people so Jesus the Messiah could never even come in the first place. And when that failed, as it obviously did, that he still, and I say he, I mean Lucifer, Satan, he still tried and to destroy the Jewish people. And throughout history, we call this term anti-Semitism. And especially as it has been exponentially increasing just within the last um, couple years. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is a very important study. Uh, We're going to be studying church history, where the church got off track, how it actually entered into the church, where churches have become anti-Semitic. We're going to give you the reason how it happened and why it happened. So we got to go right back to the beginning uh, to where this all began. So I'm going to have you flip back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, and let's see where this war begins. Genesis chapter 3 is, of course, after the fall, and now God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, on the woman, and on Adam. Consequences for Adam and Eve's failure But the seducer was Lucifer. And so the judgment here, picking it up in verse 14, is pronounced upon him. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed uh, more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now verse 15. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, I want to stop right here. The rest of it is a reference to Jesus Christ as the enemy is going to try to kill him, but in actuality, the Lord will defeat him. But I'm interested in in part A of verse 15 where it says there's going to be enmity, warfare, literally. Between who? Between the seed of the woman which is all of mankind, but in the context where we're going to trace it is this Jewish part of the seed of the woman and her descendants, and then the seed of the serpent. Now I'm going to be referring to that term throughout the study this morning. In other words, he's going to have his own offspring. People that are dedicated to do what he has been trying to do from the beginning and that is prevent the Messiah from even coming in the first place by destroying the Jewish people, because if he can destroy the Jewish people, the promise comes through Jesus was from the line of the tribe of Judah. He's Jewish. And so if he could accomplish the elimination of all Jewish people, then there could not be any Messiah. That's his strategy. It maintains his strategy to this day. So it's important that we have a a foundation stone. We're talking about a cornerstone. Here's a foundation stone to anti-Semitism. What is a curse? There's going to be a war going on, a spiritual war um, against those that he influences to try to destroy the Jewish people. We call it anti-Semitism. has different degrees. And the seed of the woman, Israel herself, and how they have become... um, um, to the point at, at our study this morning where the Lord says he's going to turn it over. You've rejected me, but I'm going to turn it over uh, to others. Now, one of the things the gals are going to teach you is that when you read a scripture like that, it would seem to indicate that he's done with Israel and give it to others. That would be you and I, the Gentiles, for the last 2,000 years. But you have to study the whole context of scriptures. And what does the Bible 
teach on it. God still has a plan for Israel. He's set them aside. He has not forsaken them. Good place for an amen. But we're going to study this morning how this all came about and trace uh, places where nations have tried to completely eliminate Judaism. So with that, uh, again, so many examples. I'm just going to use um, uh, Esther this morning. So Esther is right before Job, if you know where Job is. So let's make our way over to the book of Esther, chapter 3. Background here is uh, the Babylonian Empire has come to an end. Um, This is now the Medo-Persian Empire. It's during the time of Ahasuerus. Uh, He's also known as Xerxes. And uh, he is over the world at this time. He has 127 provinces. And he is uh, king and dictator of the entire world at this time. And he throws a huge party to show his glory and everything. He wants to show off his wife. She refuses to come. She blows him off completely. And um, um, his wife's counselors came to him and said, we've got to do something here because if you don't deal with your wife, we're in big trouble because our wives are going to start following the example of your wife who blew you off and we don't want them to blow us off. So she's got to go. Let's have a beauty contest. You need a new queen. So they did. And um, this is where we're introduced to Esther. She's Jewish, but it's hidden from the king at this time. Now, the bad guy in this story is a guy named uh, Haman. And um, he had a high position in uh, Ahasuerus' administration. People would bow down to him all the time, except for one guy. That was Mordecai. He's a Jew. And one of the commandments is, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only will you worship. You can't bow down to anybody. So Mordecai, being a good Jew, when everybody else was bowing down, he wouldn't. And it drove this guy crazy. And he says, I've had it up to here with Mordecai. I can't take him anymore. And so let's pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 3. When Haman uh, saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. So instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Let me interject. Here is an example of the seed of the serpent. He has purposed it in his mind, but he doesn't know it's not really his mind. Behind the scene is actually Satan himself putting this plan in his head. All Jews, everyone must die. Why all? It should be just mad at this one guy. We go on to read verse seven. In the seventh month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is lots. They call it today, they still celebrate it to this day, the Feast of Purim. Um, Before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, you know, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all your provinces, they live in all of them. Their laws are different from all other peoples. They don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to even let them remain. If it please the king, let a decree be written that they shall be destroyed And I'll even pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it in to the king's treasury. Here we have one example of a plan that is hatched to destroy every Jew in every province. Um, Obviously that didn't happen. And um, uh, God interceded using Esther on behalf And it's interesting, again, how the Lord turns the tables. Uh, Haman actually had gallows 75 feet tall made to hang Mordecai on. 
But if you know how the story ends, who's the one who was hung on the gallows? It was Haman, not Mordecai. And so the Lord again switched the tables, the people were saved, and he couldn't change the decree. There was a difference in power between Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and Ahasuerus of Persia. If it was Nebuchadnezzar, his word was final. If it was Tuesday and he said it's Monday, well then it's Monday. Is everybody with me on that? That's the authority he had. Not so with the Medes and the Persians. When he signs a a decree, uh, it can't be altered or it can't be changed. And um, so he gets the decree, but we find out, no, you'll have to read the end, end of the story. Let's turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11. Our parable is the Lord sending prophets. I have a picture, Rembrandt actually painted a picture of Jeremiah. And except for the clothing that he's wearing, I think he captured um, the heart of the man in his, in his painting of Jeremiah. Uh, he's depressed. He's called the weeping prophet. He has one message, and that is you guys have gone too far. As a result, God is going to send you into captivity for 70 years, and there's nothing you can do about it. And they got sick and tired of hearing that message. So we read in chapter 11, um, picking up in verse 18, Jeremiah, make sure I got this right, 11, 18 and 19. Now the Lord give me knowledge of it, for I knew it. For you showed me their doings. But Jeremiah says, but I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. And let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered No more. Go to chapter 20 of Jeremiah. And again, I'm only using one prophet of the many prophets. Chapter 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, Pusher, the son of Amir, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. What things? You guys are going into captivity. Don't even try to fight it. Capitulate. Don't, and uh, as a result, then uh, Pasher struck Jeremiah the prophet and then put him in stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So they smacked him around a little bit, put him in stocks. Why? They did not want to hear the message. Now with just that little bit of a background, the foundation of the war that started between the seed of serpent being manifested at a guy like um, Haman, and then an example of how they treated God's people. If we go back to Luke 19 now, we're going to have a better feel for what this, this parable is all about. God sending his prophets, but instead of listening, no, they beat him up. They put him in stocks. And um, that's an example of Jeremiah. Um, they believe that they saw sawed, <laughs> uh, Isaiah in two. That's how he died. And the list just goes on and on. So we find the Old Testament prophets, um, the people rejecting God's word, leading up to. But through all this, there's a spiritual war going on between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent to try to eliminate the Jewish people. And we read it again, verse 47 of 19, they sought to destroy him. And we find uh, the Lord saying that uh, they they attempt to kill uh, the very one that they should have been looking for. Jesus was their Jewish Messiah. Now in Zechariah, it actually gets into the emotional part of the Jewish people when they realize that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Everybody wants to be alone. They went into such mourning. It says says when they realize it, you mean it was really Jesus all along? 
And their attitude is, leave me alone. I don't want to be with my family right now. I just want to get away, and I want to mourn by my, myself. Even goes on to say in the next chapter, um, one will say to him, hey, where did you get those wounds in your hands? And the Lord said, oh, I got those from my friends in the house of my friends. And that, you know, dart to the heart even more. And so what they've been looking for and longing for, um, you'd have to be Jewish really to understand the intensity of emotion. That the very one that they were looking for is the one that they, as it says in Isaiah, was despised and rejected. So as a result of that, in verse 15 and 16 of Luke 20, the consequences. The Lord said to them in um, verse 15 and 16, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what shall the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will destroy those vine dressers and give the vine dressers to others. All right, Israel has been temporarily set aside. But remember in Daniel chapter nine that God promised Israel that he would work with them for 490 years. Well, when they rejected him back in verse 19, in verse 32, it says, if you'd only known, especially in this, your day. Now he's talking about Daniel chapter nine. When he would come, on a specific day to the day, which was April 6, 32 AD, that um, because they didn't know that, it goes on to say the consequences are going to be, in verse 43, that your enemies are going to come against you. They're going to build an embankment around you, surround you, enclose you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground, and will not leave one stone upon another. This actually happened 38 years later after Jesus said it here. In 70 AD, the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem and um, they went into captivity and have been there until just 70 years ago when they became a nation again. So the consequences for this, um, he quotes Psalm 18 when they say, well, certainly not. That's not gonna happen to us. And then the Lord says, well, what, what's this that's written then? Uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The very one you're rejecting, he said, I'm the cornerstone. Now, an interesting story, it took me a while to dig this up. I heard it years ago, finally found it on the internet, about the building of the temple. And when you visit um, Israel and you get to Jerusalem, uh, if you're fortunate, uh, sometimes it's open, sometimes it's closed. There's a place real close to, to the Damascus Gate. It's called Solomon's Quarries. And what they did there is the stone for the temple, most of it came directly from underneath the city of Jerusalem. And there's big caverns as huge as this building, open and then narrow ones. And you could see where they quarried the stone for the building of the temple. Now, with that in mind, I'll tell you a story. It says, well, a stone came from the quarry that didn't seem to fit into the building. And so the people didn't see or understand where this particular stone went, so they tossed it aside. Now, this building was seven years in construction. So in seven years, the shrubbery and all that can grow up and cover. And the story goes that the stone it just became lost in this overgrowth of shrubbery and all, so that when the cornerstone, the chief stone of the building, was needed to finish the project, they said, where is it? And those at the quarry said that that stone was made, and we sent that a long time ago to the job. And they said, well, it's not here. And they said, well, we sent it. So they went around looking for it, and someone said, well, remember that stone that we threw over there in the bushes? And they went over, and sure enough, the very stone that was rejected by the builders was the chief cornerstone of the building. This actually happened. So the one that they were looking for, now the Lord quotes it to them here. You're the chief builders, and the very stone, the cornerstone of the temple itself, 
as uh, you um, rejected. Consequences? I'm going to give it to others. And for the past 2,000 years, the gospel has been given to the world. Now remember, in Daniel, he still owes Israel one week, one seven-year period of time. He is not through with Israel. I need an amen. Amen. But if if we would just read this um, and see, well, they're rejected and he's going to be given to others. Unless you now have a whole context of God's plan for his people, then you could take this out of context and build a whole theology around it. And that's exactly what happened. And what I'd like to do this morning is take a little time and explain where this crept into the church uh, through church uh, history. The war to destroy the Jewish people remains an anti-Semitism in the church is a fact of history. I'm gonna quote from the book Road to Holocaust. I think it's a classic if you wanna understand why mainline Protestantism, mainline Roman Catholicism uh, has adhered to allegorical teaching when it comes to eschatology and primarily the book of Revelation. Instead of taking it literally for what it says, they've allegorized it. But what I want to try to explain this morning is how it got there in the first place. Where did it all begin? The seeds of Satan actually entering in to the church. So I want to give credit where credit is due here. This comes from Hal Lindsey's book, Road to Holocaust. And he says, Christians today need to pay close attention to the following historical records of how good Christian leaders with um, erroneous prophetic views laid the theological groundwork for evil men, I call them seeds of Satan, often masquerading as Christians to justify the extermination of the Jewish race. And sadly, it has also influenced many true Christians to join in with the prevailing anti-Semitism. Now, the man most responsible for changing the way the church interpreted prophecy was Origen. Now we're going way back. We're talking, he lived 185 to 254 AD. So he became very influential. His name is Origen. He was a leading teacher of theology and philosophy at the influential school of Alexandria, Egypt at the beginning, right before the beginning of the third century. Church historian A.H. Newman reports, Origen was the first to reduce the allegorical method of interpretation to a system. His method of scripture interpretation was soon adopted throughout the church and prevailed throughout the Middle Ages. In this particularly, Origen's influence was bad and only bad. It must be said that Origen was not an evil man. In fact, he was very much a scholarly Christian, a philosopher, a courageous man of faith, who lived a humble life. But because of his desire to harmonize the New Testament with the philosophies of guys like Plato, um, he powerfully introduced and taught and spread the allegorical method. When I say that, what you want to be thinking, instead of the literal, what the word says. In other words, spiritualizing, in this case, like the book of Revelation. And the influence, this allegorical method of interpreting the scriptures, particularly in the area of prophecy, from this seemingly harmless fact of church history, evolved a system of prophetic interpretation that created the atmosphere in which Christian anti-Semitism took root and began to spread. Using this method of prophetic interpretation, Christian theologians began to develop the idea that the Israelites had permanently forfeited all of the covenants by rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Now, if we're going back to our text, we just read verse 16. Let's go back and read it again. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, if you just took that one verse out, you'd say, okay, he's done with Israel, and he's given it to the church. 
And that is where origin started with this and it began to make its inroads. But that's not what all of scripture teaches, especially if you understand the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. All right. This view taught that these covenants now belong to the church and that is the only true Israel forever. The view also taught that the Jews will never again have a future as a divine chosen people and that the Messiah will never establish his messianic kingdom on earth that was promised to him. Now the consequences of this doctrine were subtle at first but most serious consequence was the, uh, the protection provided by the clear scriptural warning of God against those who would harm his covenant people who were snatched away. I'm sure he's thinking of Genesis 12.3. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those that curse you. And they were able to, through the systematic teaching, um, create this feeling of contempt that naturally flowed since in the eyes of those who held this view, the Jews were clinging to a hope that now belonged only to the church. From these attitudes evolved the idea that they were blind imposters under the curse of God, unrepentant Christ killers. Uh, their tenacious efforts to remain a separate and distinct race with the hope of the Messiah's future coming to establish a promised kingdom of God were viewed as a special arrogance. The church leaders saw no justification for the Jews to remain a distinct people since in their view, their hopes belong exclusively to the church. Now, we have a name for this. We call it replacement theology. So whenever you hear that term, replacement theology, what they're really saying is, God, all the promises that were given to Israel are replaced and given to the church. Now, I started with origin. I wanna take one other church father, what we call uh, the Christian fathers of the faith, and that's Augustine. So we're fast forwarding to about, he lived between 354 and 425 AD. So Augustine, well-respected in um, uh, mainline Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. By the time of Augustine, the famous bishop of Hippo, Origen's system of interpretation uh, dominated the Christian scene. But it was Augustine who systemized the allegorical base teaching into a very cohesive theology that would dominate the church for over 1,000 years. Did you catch that? This had crept into the church, it's got its claws into it, and now this has been a part of Christian teaching for almost a thousand years. Even the reformers continued to hold most of uh, his views, including his allegorical-based unrefined eschatology. The Roman Catholic Church, using origin system of interpretation and Augustine's theology, soon applied and instituted the teaching that they were the inheritors of Israel's promise and that they were the inheritors of the kingdom promised to Israel, therefore must take ultimate authority over all the political powers of the world. And that was really the plan of Roman Catholicism. Not just the only church, but also over every political leader as they saw this in replacement theology. Now, this one's going to shock you. Um, the den- I'll mention this later. The denomination that I came out of when I got saved um, held to replacement theology. And there was anti-Semitism there. Uh, really didn't recognize it, but looking back at it now, subtly, people's attitudes towards the Jewish people and those who really understood uh, Origen and Augustine. But this is where it gets heavy. Because even during the Reformation, Martin Luther was seduced by this through Origen and uh, Augustine. So what I'm further quoting um, is from Hal Lindsey's book. It's called Martin Luther Succumbs. It is a 
tragic that even the great reformer Martin Luther was finally seduced by all the anti-Jewish propaganda of his time. Although in his early ministry, Luther actually wrote a most, most sympathetic track acknowledging the shameful way that the church had treated the Jews and urged kind treatment to them. In later years, he wrote another tract that was completely opposite. Here, in part, is Luther's tract written in 1543. Well, we just celebrated 500 years of the Reformation. And so this was 500 years ago. And this is a tract that he actually wrote. What then shall we Christians do with these damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us, and we know about their lying and their blasphemy and their cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies and curses and blasphemies. We must prayerfully and reverently practice a merciful severity. Let me give you my honest advice. Number one, set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever again see a stone or a cinder of them. This is to be done in the honor and the name of the Lord and Christianity. Number two, I advise that their homes also be razed and destroyed. Number three, I advise that all their prayer books, Talmudic writings, in which such idolatries, lies, cursings, and blasphemies are taught, be taken from them. Number four, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Number five, I advise that safe conduct of the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. For they have no business in the countryside since they're not lords, officials, or tradesmen, or the like. Let them stay at home. And then the irony of the sarcasm here, he says, oh, Why did I say that? What home? Since that was presumably burned in point two. Number six, I advise that their usury be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasures of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Number seven, pretty much just make them servants and let them uh, do whatever you tell them to. The Encyclopedia Judica rightly comments about Luther's track. Short of Auschwitz ovens and extermination, the whole Nazi Holocaust is pre-outlined here. Is it any wonder that Hitler quoted Martin Luther as justification for the murder and he called it the final solution of the Jews? But where did it come from? It started with origin, went on through Augustine, became so embedded that even a guy like Martin Luther was eventually seduced to write a track like that? Do you know how much influence Martin Luther had in his time during the Reformation? So I've been to Auschwitz three times, and um, you wonder why it's hard for us these days to talk to the Jewish people about their Messiah. They have too many memories of the Holocaust. They not only were killed, but they were killed in the name of Jesus Christ. And they got the foundation from uh, somebody none other than Martin Luther. So in this sense, he is being used as a seed of Satan, even the great reformer. And um, if the denomination that, that I came out of happened to be that, and it is one that holds to, again, what we call replacement theology. All right, let's fast forward to today. We pretty much started with Origen, Augustine, Martin Luther. Let's bring it up to right now what's happening in our world today. Anti-Semitic incidents remain at near historic levels in 2018. Assaults against Jews more than doubled. I'm quoting April 30th, 2019, a couple months ago. The U.S. Jewish community experienced near historic levels of anti-Semitism in 2018, including a a doubling of anti-Semitic assaults and the single deadliest attack against the Jewish community 
in American history. According to the new data from ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, issued today, the ADL's annual audit of anti-Semitism incidents recorded a total of 1,879 attacks against Jews and Jewish institutions across the country in 2018. Attacks against the Jewish, um, the third highest year on record since the ADL started tracking such data in the 1990s. And then what we have currently as I'm speaking, and I'm going to put this on screen, are a couple of our congresswomen. First one here is Ahan Omar, supports the anti-Semitic, it's called the BDS movement, the Boycott, uh, Divest, and Sanction movement. This global movement opposes any Jewish state. They're aimed to bring Israel down by destroying her economy. The other one that you're looking at is Alexandra um, um, Cortez. Uh, she believes Palestinians are being massacred and Israel is criminal in their treatment of them. She likens the southern U.S. border detention centers to concentration camps and also believes that the U.S. should cut off aid to Israel. And now, the third one, and there's many other examples, of, uh, of uh, here is in, in Europe we have, in France, this is the Jewish cemetery, and we see the swats because being put on the gravestones. And um, uh, this is just one incident in France. Let's go to America, take a look at the skinheads and uh, their uh, swatskas and their claim to say, you know, Hitler had it right all along. And that's exactly what's happening current time as uh, where we're living right now. So as we look at, we can go back to Luke 20. Here we are, the Lord is giving the parable of the vineyard. And he tells the history of what happened in the Garden of Eden, that there would be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what do we see through church history? Yeah, actually making its way into the church and justifying the Holocaust by using tracts by Martin Luther. And we have most of Christianity today that have this view when it comes to the book of Revelation. Certainly the billion Catholics in the world hold to it. And um, I'm not just picking on them because my denomination holds to replacement theology too. And I'm quoting a guy named Ogden Nash right now. He said, how odd of God to choose the Jews, but odder still that those who choose the Jewish God and spurn the Jews. Interesting quote. What does the Lord say? Well, when these things begin to happen, look up, your redemption uh, is drawing nigh. And we have, we've gone, how much time I got here? I got a little bit of time to add something here. And that is, We've started with the garden. We went to Esther. We got into church history with Origen, Augustine, Martin Luther, present tense, our congresswoman. But let's go into the future. Because even after the rapture, this is the only card Lucifer has to play. If he can't destroy the Jewish people, he couldn't do it the first time because he rose again from the dead. Good place for an amen. But they're gonna, he's going to try to do it again, even after the rapture. Because his only hope is the destruction of the Jewish people. Because the Lord says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if there's no Jews, how can the Jews say, Lord, come back. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. We find in chapter 12, this is in the middle of, remember I told you that this is why we don't have an allegorical view of, of uh, Revelation, 
but a literal view. But there's symbolism, don't get me wrong. Chapter 12 is loaded with symbolism. In this case, um, a fiery red dragon, a male child, and a woman. Those are the three characters. The fiery red dragon is the devil. How do you know that, Dwight? Well, just go down to verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Who is the woman? Well, um, the woman is the seed of Eve, who begat the Jewish nation with Abraham, the father of the faith. And through her, the woman, came the Messiah. And so we read in verse five, the woman bore a male child who was to rule all nations. Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, that happened in the book of Acts, Acts chapter one. He was bodily taken into heaven and they witnessed him going to heaven. And then um, this war in heaven, that has not taken place. So now we're talking about anti-Semitism that's yet future. We're gone. We've been taken at the rapture of the church and we find that when he's cast to the earth, um, verse, we'll pick it up in verse 12, he says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. How much time is a short time? Three and a half years. Literally, no allegorical stuff here. A literal three and a half, and that's all the time he's got. So what, how do you think he's gonna spend his time? Well, it tells us. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Who is the woman? Israel, who gave birth to the male child. Jesus is Jewish. The early church up till Cornelius was all Jewish. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. And she is nourished for a time and times and half a times. Just another way of saying three and a half years. God has to supernaturally protect them. If you're taking notes right now, Matthew 24. Jesus said when the disciples asked, Lord, when are you coming back again? What's it gonna be like? He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, And then in parentheses, whosoever reads, let him understand. Let him understand what's taking place here. Then flee into the wilderness. If you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 16 tells us where they go. It's called Selah, or Petra. It's in Jordan. Coincidentally, one of the countries that the Antichrist does not have power over. So, they're in Jordan, they've fled. And remember, this is the only card he has to play. You know what I like about the Bible? Is you can, you can go and read the end of the book anytime you want to. You ever cheat in reading a book, say, I don't know if I want to read the whole thing, I'm just going to go to the end, see how it all ends up? Well, this is the good news. This isn't, ooh, what's going to happen next? No, we know what's going to happen. We know that he's going to be defeated. And we know that he is going to come and he's going to establish the kingdom that he promised to David. David, you can't build a house for me, but I'm going to build one for you. Matter of fact, I'm going to have you serve as a, um, a model for me in that kingdom. King David, for, the, uh, for his people. So... Um, Verse 16, the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up so she was protected. Verse 17, okay, I can't get them. So what does he do? The dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. He's still trying to wipe out the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, um, I want you to look at chapter 13 as we try to wind this thing up this morning. And as we look at chapter uh, 13, we read, this is the beast. Um, He has a fatal head wound. He comes back to life. He has a false prophet 
And because he comes back to life, the false prophet declares him to be God. Paul says the same thing in uh, 2 Thessalonians. We read in, let's pick it up in verse 15. This is the Antichrist image in the temple in Jerusalem. In verse 15 it says, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast and the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So it's either take the mark of the beast or be killed. And he caused small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead that no one might buy or sell except the one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. We've looked and I'm just gonna ask you to be honest. As we look at our world today, do we see a rise in anti-Semitism? And I'll let you answer that yourself. It's either a yes or a no, and you can do your own research, be a Berean, and check it out for yourself. Either there is or there isn't. And now we're talking about technology that would, is, that's accessible, that um, you can't buy or sell unless you have this mark or chip. Well, let me just read in closing. Um, The mark of the beast, thousands of Swedes become microchipped. I'm quoting from um, LifeSite News, July 17th, just recently, 2019. Thousands of people in Sweden are consenting to having microchips placed under their skin to aid in their financial transactions. Traveling on a train, opening locked doors, Uh, Sweden's uh, Bihox International has patented a microchip that can be injected into the human hand and used to carry out financial transactions, unlock doors, access information. Um, Joan, he's a 38-year-old, began his company in 2013, and according to Fortune magazine, Bihox has now inserted microchips into 4,000 people in Sweden and others across Europe. Uh, Fortune magazine, he goes on to say he believes millions more will want to be injected with the chip. Sweden is already mostly cashless, and Swedes trust their government too much to think it would use technology against them. But there's even a higher technology than this one that has just come out, and it's another form of, um, of being marked without the chip. This one is a chipless RFID technology, which now is used around the world on every single thing that is manufactured. Did you catch that? Much cheaper and far more durable, several companies are perfecting this. One company called Somark began to manufacture in 2007 biocompatible RFID tattoo ink that is permanent, cannot be removed or altered. Each has a unique number and can be read from several feet away. Unlike the chip embedded into a bony forehead, it can be easily put on hand or forehead and can also be invisible for more like the Hollywood types who don't want something between their eyes, like Manson. And it also fits the Revelation reference to being either on the hand or the forehead. So again, I'm just gonna ask you, as we see anti-Semitism rising, either it's true or it's not, uh, how close are we if we already have a nation like Sweden that's gone cashless? And we have the technology today to produce this. My Bible says when these things um, go back to, I, had a, I gotta tie this up, go back to Luke 20. And we'll, I wanna give the gospel as we close here. Basically, I've given you a history of anti-Semitism. And all the signs are there for the rapture to happen today. For this plan to be instituted tomorrow. The technology exists, and um, 
um, there will be many who will be succumbed by it. But our main scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he throws it out. And here's where I want to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said he's the only way. There's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Well, I don't believe that. Well, if you don't believe that, then verse 18 applies to one of two different kinds of people in the world. It says, whoever falls on a stone will be broken. Well, what does that mean? That means when, when you hear the word of God, that Jesus said he came to die for your sins, and you repent. The brokenness here is your repentance. Saying, Lord, I agree with you that I'm a sinner, and I need you for my salvation. That is a broken and a contrite spirit. But let's say you don't want that, and you harden your heart. My Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. But let's say, uh, like the religious leaders, we don't want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Well, then the next one's for you. But if you fall on a stone and repent, you'll be saved. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You see, whether you believe it or not, every knee is going to bow someday. And every tongue is going to confess, no matter what you believe. You are going to stand before Jesus Christ as your Savior at the, great, um, at the judgment seat of Christ or as his judge and be judged at the great white throne judgment. And ask yourself, what do you think about the Jewish people? What's in your heart? And remember the Lord says, I'm gonna bless those who bless them, but I'm gonna curse those who curse them. Good place to end? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, there's so much that we can take in this morning as we've traced the history of what took place in the garden that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Lord, this invisible war to destroy your people is a fact of history. And now, as Lord, as we um, consider all these things and we see how late it is, Lord, help us adhere to your word that when these things begin to happen, that we are to look up and be ready knowing that a redemption is drawing nigh. And so we thank you for your word that lays us all out for us. And may you be blessed and we pray and bless the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in Jesus' name, amen. RFID Tattoo Inc. that is permanent, cannot be removed or altered. Each has a unique number and can be read from several feet away. Unlike the chip embedded into a bony forehead, it can be easily put on hand or forehead and can also be invisible for more like the Hollywood types who don't want something between their eyes like Manson. And it also fits the Revelation reference to being either on the hand or the forehead. So again, I'm just gonna ask you, as we see anti-Semitism rising, either it's true or it's not. Uh, How close are we if we already have a nation like Sweden that's gone cashless and we have the technology today to produce this? My Bible says when these things um, go back to, I I gotta tie this up, go back to Luke 20 and we'll, I wanna give the gospel as we close here. Basically, I've given you a history of anti-Semitism. And all the signs are there for the rapture to happen today, for this plan to be instituted tomorrow. The technology exists, and um, um, there will be many who will be succumbed by it. But our main scripture, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he throws it out, and here's where I want to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said he's the only way. There's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Well, I don't believe that. Well, if you don't believe that, then verse 18 applies to one of two different kinds of people in the world. It says, whoever falls on a stone will be broken. Well, what does that mean? That means when when you hear the word of God, 
that Jesus said he came to die for your sins and you repent. The brokenness here is your repentance. Saying, Lord, I agree with you that I'm a sinner and I need you for my salvation. That is a broken and a contrite spirit. But let's say you don't want that and you harden your heart. My Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. But let's say, uh, like the religious leaders, we don't want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Well, then the next one's for you. But if you fall on a stone and repent, you'll be saved. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You see, whether you believe it or not, every knee is going to bow someday. And every tongue is going to confess, no matter what you believe. You are going to stand before Jesus Christ as your Savior at the, great, um, at the judgment seat of Christ or as his judge and be judged at the great white throne judgment. And ask yourself, what do you think about the Jewish people? What's in your heart? And remember, the Lord says, I'm going to bless those who bless them, but I'm going to curse those who curse them. Good place to end? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, there's so much that we had take in this morning as we've traced the history of what took place in the garden that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Lord, this invisible war to destroy your people is a fact of history. And now, as Lord, as we um, consider all these things and we see how late it is, Lord, help us adhere to your word that when these things begin to happen, that we are to look up and be ready knowing that a redemption is drawing nigh. And so we thank you for your word that lays us all out for us. And may you be blessed and we pray and bless the nation of Israel and the Jewish people in Jesus' name, amen.